Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. The scripture reading this morning is Acts 15, um, verses 1 through 21. You can find that on page 757 of your Pew Bible, the Council at Jerusalem. Certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all of the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged in the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors could have have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon had described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immortality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest of times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. It's been a while, so I don't know if you even remember this, but we actually had been working our way through the gospel according to Luke. 
uh, his two-volume work, The Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. And we finished the Gospel of Luke, and we're about halfway through. In fact, we are exactly halfway through the Gospel of Acts. And to catch you up, the Gospel of Acts begins with Jesus telling his disciples as he's getting ready to ascend to heaven that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Well, they went to Jerusalem after that, and the Holy Spirit overcame them and empowered them to bring the gospel to all of those places that he told them to go to. Uh, And so they started to share the gospel right away, immediately in Jerusalem, but it took persecution for them to move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. But now, in our passage today, Paul and Barnabas had already made their way out to the ends of the earth, going to the Gentiles, and the response was already way greater than what they had ever expected. But this created a problem for the church, as success often does. You see, all of the believers were Jews by birth. All of the disciples were Jews by birth. Uh, Jesus was Jewish. All of the early converts were Jewish. It was a homogenous group, not only in their religious practice, but also in their cultural practices. And sometimes there is a clear distinction between culture and religion, but sometimes those lines start to get a little bit blurred. And that was the problem that, created the pro- that, that was the thing that created the problem at the heart of our passage today. Now, to be honest, I want to tell you, I struggled a little bit with this passage. I've, I've preached on it before, and I always struggle with it. And the reason is, is that whenever we read Scripture, we're taught to try to find some tried and true principles that are universally applicable in every time and in every situation. Unfortunately, Scripture doesn't always cooperate with that. And in the case of this passage, I think it's really easy for us to try to take it to places that it was never intended to go. But that being said, it is a passage that I think will stretch us. It'll stretch our theological imagination. And it will cause us to consider some things that maybe we had never considered before. And I want you to know that throughout the message, I'm going to be a little bit provocative. And and I'm doing that intentionally. And there will be times, maybe for some of you, that the hair will stand up on the back of your neck. But I promise you that by the time we get to the end of it, we will still be friends. All right? So you make that promise to me, I'll make that promise to you. All right? So let's dive into the the scripture. The Bible tells us that when God set out to save the world, he did so by choosing a family, the family of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through him and through his descendants. And Abraham's descendants became known as Uh, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Now, as God was raising them up, he created some boundaries for them to help them to maintain their distinct identity from the people around them. And this wasn't because God didn't love the uh, the other nations around, but he chose the Jewish people to be a nation of priests that will represent God to them, and then they can also intercede for the other people, to the other nations, to God. But because of that, because they were priests, God had to set them apart from the other nations. And so he created those boundaries, and those boundaries are what we call the law of Moses. And this law had a lot of regulations, and some of them were basic human morality, like don't lie, steal, commit adultery. 
But others were not necessarily such universal morality. They were boundary markers like circumcision and ritual purity and temple sacrifices, food laws, and Sabbath. And other nations were judged for things like sexual immorality, injustice, and idol worship, but they were never judged because they ate bacon. But while God commanded them to be separate, to build their identity, that division was always intended to be a temporary division. See, the Old Testament made it very clear in passages like Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, where the prophet tells about the time when the Messiah comes, and he promised that I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and, say to those who, uh, and they will say, you are my God. Or we see in passages like Amos chapter 9, where the prophet Amos makes this same promise, where he says, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins will be rebuilt, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. In other words, the Jews were not chosen just for their own salvation, but they were chosen to be a blessing to all of the other nations of the world. And so, as Paul and Barnabas went out to the Gentiles, what the prophet foretold was happening right before their very eyes. The Gentiles were coming to Jesus in droves. They were forming churches that were almost entirely made up of Gentiles. They were growing and God was moving. And Paul and Barnabas was, were forming close connections with these Gentiles that years before they would never have been caught in the same room with, let alone eating with. Well, our passage today starts by telling us this. And of course, this is from Acts chapter 15. If you don't have your Bible open to it, we'd love to have you open it and follow it along with it because we're going to be walking right through this, this passage. But as we get to Acts chapter 15, verse 1 says this. It says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, it's not really a coincidence that these people came from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, I guess, what you might call headquarters of the Jewish people. Think, think like Salt Lake City or Utah for the Mormons. Okay? That's what Jerusalem was for the Jewish people and what Judea was to the Jews. And so even when the Jews from there came to Christ, they actually maintained their Jewish sensibilities. They still worshipped in the temple. Many of them offered sacrifices. Many of them still followed kosher laws and all of that. Well, the certain people who came from Judea to Antioch would be, I guess what you would call the conservatives of the story because they were trying to conserve the old ways. Okay, that's what conservative means. They try to conserve something. And so the liberals in this story, Paul and Barnabas, had a problem with this. Okay, they saw how God was moving in the lives of the Gentiles, just like with Cornelius. Okay, when Peter saw that Cornelius received the Holy Spirit, even though he wasn't circumcised, and didn't make any commitment to the law of Moses, this was kind of a, a paradigm shift for Peter. And now, that same thing was happening over and over and over in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. They were being saved, they were receiving the Holy Spirit without being circumcised, and this was causing a stir among the conservatives. And so a few of them went to headquarters to meet with the apostles, who would decide between them. Do Gentiles need to follow the law of Moses in order to follow Jesus? They set out for Jerusalem, but in the churches that they visited along the way, they shared the story of all these Gentiles who were coming to faith. 
And even as they got closer to headquarters, most of the Jewish believers were overjoyed about this. They were thrilled. They knew the prophets, and they knew that this was a great thing, that these Gentiles are coming to Jesus. Well, when they got to Jerusalem, they all gathered, and they started out with Paul and Barnabas sharing what God was doing in the lives of the Gentiles. And after Paul and Barnabas presented their side, the other group stood up, and I can imagine them saying something like this. Listen, Paul and Barnabas, we are really happy about the work that you're doing with the Gentiles. We really are. I hope you believe we're sincere about that. The work you're doing, it's a tough environment, and praise God that these people are coming to Jesus. Okay, But we want to make sure that you're teaching them the right things. Because, you know, the basics, like the law of Moses. Because if you don't do that then who knows what kind of slippery slope those Gentiles are going to go down. Okay, we need to make sure that as they're coming to Jesus, that we are discipling them, that we are training them right. Now, they have a pretty good point, don't they? In fact, in our passage last week, Paul himself tells the Gentiles in the churches in, around Ephesus that they should no longer live like Gentiles. Right? You know, this is the same Paul who is now standing in front of the other apostles arguing that they shouldn't require the Gentiles to follow the law of Moses. So, while we might rightly say that at the Council of Jerusalem, what Paul is doing is, you know, he's kind of playing the part of the liberal. If we actually read Paul's letters, we find many places where he sounds pretty darn conservative, too. Now, at this point, both of the groups had had their say. And so the apostles and the elders get together to deliberate. Luke says, after much discussion... Peter got up to speak. Now, the reason Peter spoke first is that he was seen as the head of the apostles. You know, there's a doctrine in the Catholic Church that says Peter was the first pope. You know, and there's certainly some evidence that that Peter was prominent among the other apostles. And so it's appropriate that he's the one that starts to deliver the verdict. And here's what he said. He says, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Right? So, the first, so the first thing he does is he appeals to what they already know. See, they knew about Peter's in, uh, encounter with the Roman centurion, uh, Cornelius, who was saved through a God-ordained encounter with Peter. And not only was he saved, but Peter's interaction with, with Cornelius opened his eyes to something new that God was doing that Peter didn't expect. But it was that very thing that he had promised years and years ago. And so then in verse 8, he goes on to describe the lesson that he learned from the encounter with Cornelius. This is what he says. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Okay, and so what he's saying is, is that following the law of Moses, you can do that if you want, but it has no bearing on whether you are saved or not, whether you're Jewish or Gentile or anything in between. In Jesus, the Jews are free to follow or to not follow the law, or if they want, you know, they can, they can do it however they want. They just need to recognize that it doesn't impact their status with God at all. And so Peter says, if we are all saved the same way, Through faith in Jesus, without the Jewish law, he asks this question in verse 10. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? 
I don't know about you, but I grew up believing that the harder or more unpleasant something was, the more spiritual it was. Right? So a Bible study at 5 a.m. is more spiritual than a Bible study at 10 a.m. We acted like more rules equals more dedication. And we can see this attitude throughout history. You can see it, for instance, in the Desert Fathers and the Desert Monks who lived sometimes crazy lives of self-denial. One guy lived on top of a pole for 30 years. There was another guy who is uh, said to have put worms on sores that he had on his body from you know, all of the unhealthy things that he was doing. And whenever the worms fell off, he would put them back on the sore and say, eat what God has given you. Now obviously the Desert Fathers are a pretty uh, extreme example. Okay, but I want you to see is that even though self-discipline is a part of the Christian life, just because something is harder or more strenuous doesn't make it more spiritual. See, the gospel is a breath of fresh air to a lot of people. It's a breath of fresh air for people who had always tried to prove that they were good enough to God. It's a breath of fresh air for people who are always trying to live up to other people's expectations, to, to, live, up to, the, to live up to the reputation that they uh, purport to have in church. And it's a breath of fresh air because the gospel names the reality that none of us is good enough but God accepts us anyway. And so it's a very freeing thing. And so Paul's, uh, or Peter's question is a good one. Why are you trying to place an unnecessary burden on these people who are coming to Jesus? Well, when Peter finishes, the place is silent as Barnabas and Paul share again about what's happening with the Gentiles. And, and remember, the Jews didn't think very highly of the Gentiles. That might be an, a bit of an understatement. So it would have been kind of like them sharing uh, with a group of Republican Christians about how God is moving among the Democrats. Or sharing with a group of Christians in New York City how God is moving in Alabama. Or sharing with a group of Ukrainians how God is moving in Russia. Now if you understand the feelings that that brings to light or that would bring to light for those people, then you understand what was happening there at the Jerusalem Council for these Jewish Christians. There would be a sense of amazement and even of praising God, but probably some skepticism as well. They would have probably been thinking, that's awesome, but, but what about? Well, when Paul and Barnabas finish speaking, James, add a, James adds a little bit of new information. And this is important because James was actually the leader of the Jerusalem church where the people who said that the Gentiles need to follow the law of Moses came from. Okay, so this was their pastor. And the first thing he told them was that what was happening among the Gentiles is exactly what God said would happen all along. And he takes them back to the prophet Amos to remind them how God has, had always planned to bring the Gentiles into the fold. Now, he could have referred back to probably just about any of the prophets, but Amos made his point. But what happening, what's happening right here among the Gentiles is the work of God, uh, and it is the present work of the Holy Spirit, and it is something that we see in the Scriptures. And so he makes all of those cases. And so he announces in verse 19, he announces the verdict of the council. He says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And to this, all of the liberals reply, Amen. 
Many of you know that I've been working on a doctoral project. I won't bore you with all the details, but one of the things that I'm studying is how we label ourselves. What, I think the word we use today is the word identity. And uh, I've been studying the power of identity, and much of the evidence that I've seen is that a large number of American Christians, while they say that they find their identity in Christ, in practice they tend to act more in line with their political identity. I'm a liberal or a conservative, or you'll hear people say, I'm a, I'm a progressive Christian or I'm a conservative Christian. We always have to make those, uh, those qualifications. And the evidence that we see is that more and more for Christians, the label progressive or conservative actually carries more weight than the label Christian. Here's a quick test, for instance. If you consider yourself a conservative Christian, do you find yourself agreeing more with conservative atheists or progressive Christians? Which, which of them do you see as your people? And I could, you know, say the same thing on the other side as well, okay? Because it holds true with progressive Christians as well. And here's the problem with these labels, though. Is that if we embrace the conservative label, sometimes we conserve some things that ought not to be conserved. And if we embrace the label of liberal, sometimes we end up liberating ourselves from things that we ought not liberate ourselves from. And so I don't want you to hear me wrong. I'm not advocating to, for everyone to be a moderate or being wishy-washy. What I'm saying is that when we embrace a label, an unbiblical label, like liberal or progressive or conservative, we adopt, we adopt a prepackaged set of opinions that don't all necessarily go together. Sometimes it's hard for me to figure out why the Democratic platform is what it is or the Republican platform, because a lot of things, they don't have anything to do with each other, right? But what happens then is then our side is the one that defines the boundaries, and it's always political boundaries. And a big problem with this is that what it does is rather than submitting ourselves to Scripture and what it says, we read into it what our prepackaged set of beliefs has trained us to see. And so liberals or progressives look at this passage and they say, yes, if we just get rid of all of these outdated rules, then more people would become Christians. Ah, but wait, James goes on. He says, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Okay, so the verdict is, we shouldn't make the Gentiles become Jews in order to become part of the family, but that doesn't mean that anything goes. See, the conservatives were thinking about this slippery slope argument. You know, if we don't make them go all the way and do these practices that shape their identity, then who knows what road that's going to lead them down. And the council agreed. There are some boundaries that the followers of Jesus cannot cross. Okay, and so what are the boundaries? Well, in this case, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, abstain from sexual immorality, don't eat the meat of strangled animals, and don't eat blood. Now, some people put those last two together. They're, they're kind of similar things. But uh, for all of us, though, the good news is it doesn't say anything about bacon. So we're, we're free there. Now, there is some debate about why, of all of the possibilities, they chose these four things, right? I mean, there's nothing in there about murdering or cheating. Okay, so should we assume that 
okay, well, the Gentiles, when they come to Jesus, they can still murder and cheat, but these four things, you can't, can't do those, right? No, of course not. And so by, labeling, by, uh, by identifying these four things, they're doing something in particular. Every scholar agrees on that. But that's pretty much where the agreement ends because they don't know why they chose these four things. And really there are actually a, a couple of different options. And I, uh, I read probably eight or nine different commentators on this and they weren't very helpful because they were split right down the middle as to which one they meant, okay? Here's the first possibility is that these are ethical requirements that have especially to do with idolatry. Okay, see the biggest issue with Gentiles was pagan religion and idolatry and all four of these played a part in pagan religion. Um, idolatry of course was central to it, but also temple prostitution, other sexual rituals, blood, all of that. And so it might be that the council was saying that they need to distance themselves from the allure of pagan religion and the possibility that they would go back to their old life or try to mesh Christianity with pagan practices. And so they might have been trying to safeguard against them going back or being tempted to go back to their pagan practices. And in this sense, this would be saying that the Gentiles didn't have to follow the Jewish law, but they needed to distance themselves from the pagan religion as well. All right? So that's one possibility. Here's the other possibility. Is that these are all ritual prohibitions for Jewish people and part of the law of Moses, okay? Uh, see, while the Gentiles are not free to follow the law, of, uh, are, are free not to follow the law of Moses, they should abstain from these things so that they could maintain table fellowship with Jewish Christians. We talked last week about how Paul had his hands full trying to bring together these two groups, Jews and Gentiles. And so if they couldn't come together and eat together, then it was going to be really hard for them to become a family. And so what, he, what they're saying there is, is that the Gentiles need to, uh, need to curb their freedom a little bit for the conscience of Jewish Christians. Okay? In other words, they weren't necessarily prohibitions for Gentiles but a call for them to respect their Jewish brothers and sisters for the sake of unity. Now, there might be some element of truth in this, and I think that actually can be one of the takeaways, and it's certainly something that we learn uh, from the Apostle Paul and other places in Scripture. And I would say that this is a big concern. How do we bring two groups of people together with very different backgrounds who are sometimes at odds with each other? How do we get them to live as brothers and sisters? They need to be able to eat together. On the other hand, I just can't imagine that the council would say that sexual immorality was okay for Gentiles, but they should refrain from it for the sake of Jewish people. Right? So there's kind of a problem with that one as well. And so the question is, is which view is right? Both of them make some valid points. Both of them have issues. Both of them have some precedent in scripture. You know, when it comes to uh, when people come to Jesus, they oftentimes do need to distance themselves from their old life and sometimes from their old friends to avoid falling into the traps that had ensnared, the, ensnared them in the first place. And also, it was a huge task to get Jews and Gentiles into one family. But the truth of the matter is, this passage is not clear about why. It doesn't really help us to decide between these two things. You know, I read, like I said, I read eight or nine commentators and they were split right down the middle. The truth is, is that we all bring our preconceived notions and our labels as liberals or conservatives, and that colors 
which way we decide, how we decide on passages like this. And, and the truth is, we can't entirely avoid it. We all come from traditions. We all have backgrounds and leanings and uh, personalities and things like that. So we can't entirely uh, we can't entirely avoid it, but at the same time, we have to be aware of it, and we have to be able to, we have to be willing to set aside those labels to allow Scripture to speak to us as it is. And there will be some passages that we come to in Scripture that will be incredibly conservative, and we will have some passages in Scripture that seem to be very, very liberal. And so, whatever your natural bent, you need to leave that label behind and go wherever Scripture takes you. If there is something that's clear, don't be afraid to follow it there, okay? Because we're not committed to those labels. We are committed only to faithfulness to Jesus. So the question is then, what is our takeaway, right? Especially in a passage like this where we can't necessarily come away with any clear principles. How do we decide, well, what do we take from this passage? Well, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out three things that I think we can say are true that we can learn from this passage. First... Sometimes it's wise for us to separate ourselves from our previous life in order to follow Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that God takes us completely out of the world. But it does mean that we have to be aware of the temptation that each of us has to slide back into our previous life. That led us away from Jesus in the first place. Like the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So it matters how we use our freedom in Christ. We have to exercise wisdom. And sometimes limiting ourselves for the sake of our faith is the wise choice. Two, the unity of the church is a highest level of priority for believers. Outside of sin... We need to be willing to accommodate each other because we are called to unity. Now, of course, we talked about this when it comes to other believers who don't share your political views, but it also comes into play in other ways, too. For instance, there are denominational and theological differences. Okay? If we agree on the basics that Jesus is Lord, then the non-essentials are things that we can hold loosely, and we can debate them and continue to embrace our brothers and sisters in Christ. Or, of course, there are cultural differences. Okay? People who live in the dominant culture often believe that their way of doing things is the right way. Our music is right. How we structure the church is right. How we do leadership. And this is going to become more and more into play over the next few years where they say that, that white people in America are going to become the minority in about 30 years. And so what will the church look like during that time? I think we can't continue to live as white Christians and black Christians and Hispanic Christians. We have to learn how do we live together? How do we have table fellowship together? How do we accommodate one another? This also applies to generational differences too. We've had two very different services the last couple of weeks. Last week at Throwback Sunday, which was awesome by the way. I loved it. And, uh, and I love services like this too. This is probably more the norm for us. Okay? But, but those are divides that sometimes come up as well. Generational differences. Contemporary versus traditional. Free-flowing versus liturgy. You know, we can learn so much from believers who have different cultures or denominational backgrounds or styles or age or tradition or whatever. But we need first to humble ourselves 
and be willing not just to tolerate them, but to learn from them and to recognize that they are also children of God. I think probably, though, the clearest takeaway from this passage is that sometimes in Scripture we look for universal principles that apply in every situation, but they're not always there. And in the absence of those principles, we have to exercise wisdom. In the case of the Jerusalem Council, that's actually what they did. There was not really any great scriptural precedent for it. There were hints and and leanings and things like that. They could look at the... Uh, experiences that were happening and all of that, but ultimately what they had to do was they had to exercise wisdom. And so how did they do that? Well, they considered three pieces of evidence. The first was what, was what God was doing in the lives of the Gentiles. Okay? They took that seriously. It was, it was legitimate. Second, they considered what God had showed, uh, Peter, uh, what God had showed Peter in his experience with Cornelius through the Holy Spirit. And third, they held it up to the light of Scripture. And when they considered all of those things together, they made a decision. And in the end, notice what they came out of it saying. It seemed good to us, or to the Holy Spirit, and to us. Now they don't seem incredibly confident about that. But it seemed good to us in the moment. We did the best we can. We tried to exercise wisdom. We took into account all of the evidence that we're seeing. We made sure that it lined up with scripture. And sometimes that's the best we can do in the moment. And I'm not naive enough to think that every dispute will be solved as quickly as it seems to be with the Jerusalem Council. In fact, there's some evidence in the rest of Acts that actually this didn't solve the matter either. But in the moment, they sought God's wisdom. They stayed together. They talked as a church. They considered the evidence. They considered the movement of the Holy Spirit. They went to scripture and they sought God's wisdom and moved the church forward. May we exercise the same kind of wisdom. Lord, we thank you for your word. Even when we don't always know what it says or what it's telling us in the moment. I believe that's why you gave us to each other. I believe that's why you called us to to unity, to be people who love each other, who care for each other, and even in our differences can come together and find our identity in you and you alone. And God, I pray for the church right now. I pray certainly for our local church, but but the church in general, uh, because it seems like there are a lot of divisions, and a lot of it has to do with between political uh, liberals and conservatives or progressives or whatever people identify as. And, and certainly there are important debates that are happening within the church. But God, I pray, just like Jesus did, as he was preparing his disciples to leave, that they would be unified, that, they, that we would be one, just as you and the Father are one. God, I pray that that we would seek your wisdom in all things. That even when we come to points of scripture that are unclear, that we're not exactly sure what to do or we come to times that are unprecedented, God, that you would guide us. May we listen to each other. May we listen to the Holy Spirit. May we seek the counsel of scripture and then just trust you that you will continue to guide us along the way. So thanks for passages like this that are challenging for us, that make us think, that make us talk and consider what they mean for us. And uh, and I pray 
that you would be working in our hearts and our minds as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.